Welcome to this Ubila Audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 28 The Yodel and Its Native Wilds. The ridgy culm is an imposing alpine mass, 6,000 feet high, which stands by itself and commands a mighty prospect of blue lakes, green valleys, and snowy mountains. A compact and magnificent picture. 300 miles in circumference. The ascent is made by rail or horseback or on foot, as one may prefer. I and my agent panoplied ourselves in walking costume one bright morning and started down the lake on the steamboat. We got ashore at the village of Vegas, three-quarters of an hour distance from Lucerne. This village is at the foot of the mountain. We were soon tramping leisurely up the leafy mule path, and then the talk began to flow as usual. It was twelve o'clock noon and a breezy, cloudless day. The ascent was gradual, and the glimpses from under the curtaining boughs of blue water and tiny sailboats and beetling cliffs were as charming as glimpses of dreamland. All the circumstances were perfect. And the anticipations, too, for we should soon be enjoying for the first time that wonderful spectacle, an alpine sunrise, the object of our journey. There was apparently no real need for hurry, for the guidebook made the walking distance from Vegas to the summit only three hours and a quarter. I say apparently because the guidebook had already fooled us once about the distance from Allerheiligen to Alpenau and for aught I knew it might be getting ready to fool us again. We were only certain as to the altitudes. We calculated to find out for ourselves how many hours it is from the bottom to the top. The summit is 6,000 feet above the sea, but only 4,500 feet above the lake. When we walked half an hour, we were fairly into the swing and humor of the undertaking, so we cleared for action. That is to say, we got a boy whom we met to carry our alpenstocks and satchels and overcoats and things for us. That left us free for business. I suppose we must have stopped oftener to stretch out on the grass in the shade and take a bit of a smoke than this boy was used to, for presently he asked if it had been our idea to hire him by the job or by the year. We told him he could move along if he was in a hurry. He said he wasn't in such a particular hurry, but he wanted to get to the top while he was young. We told him to clear out then and leave the things at the uppermost hotel and say we would be along presently. He said he would secure us a hotel if he could, but if they were all full, he would ask them to build another one and hurry up and get the paint and plaster dry against when we arrived. Still gently chafing us, he pushed ahead up the trail and soon disappeared. By six o'clock, we were pretty high up in the air, and the view of the lake and the mountains had greatly grown in breadth and interest. We halted a while at a little public house where we had bread and cheese and a quarter or two of fresh milk out on the porch, with the big panorama all before us, and then we moved on again. Ten minutes afterwards, we met a hot, red-faced man plunging down the mountain, making mighty strides, swinging his alpenstock ahead of him and taking a grip on the ground with its iron point to support those big strides. He stopped and fanned himself with his hat and swabbed the perspiration from his face and neck with a red handkerchief, panted a moment or two, and asked how far to Vegas. I said three hours. He looked surprised and said, 
Seems as if I could toss a biscuit into the lake from here. So close. Is that in there? I said it was. Well, I can't stand another three hours. I've had enough today. I'll take a bed there. I asked, are we nearly to the top? Nearly to the top? Bless your soul. You haven't really started yet. I said we would put up at the inn too, so we turned back and ordered a hot supper and had quite a jolly evening of it with this Englishman. The German landlady gave us neat rooms and nice beds, and when I and my agent turned in, it was with the resolution to be up early and make the utmost of our first alpine sunrise. But of course we were dead tired and slept like policemen. So when we awoke in the morning and ran to the window, it was already too late, because it was half past eleven. It was a sharp disappointment. However, we ordered breakfast and told the landlady to call the Englishman, but she said he was already up and off at daybreak, and swearing like mad about something or other. We couldn't find out what the matter was. He had asked the landlady the altitude of her place above the level of the lake. She told him 1,495 feet. That was all she said, then he lost his temper. He said that between damn fools and guidebooks, a man could acquire ignorance enough in 24 hours in a country like this to last him a year. Harris believed our boy had been loading him up with misinformation. And this was probably the case, for his epitaph described that boy to a dot. We got underway about the turn of noon and pulled out for the summit again, with a fresh and vigorous step. When we had gone about 200 yards and stopped to rest, I glanced to the left while lighting my pipe, and in the distance detected a long worm of black smoke crawling lazily up the steep mountain. Of course, that was the locomotive. We propped ourselves on our elbows at once to gaze, for we had never seen a mountain railway before. Presently, we could make out the train. It seemed incredible that the thing could creep straight up that sharp slant like the roof of a house. But there it was, and it was doing that very miracle. In the course of a couple of hours, we reached a fine breezy altitude where the little shepherd huts had big stones all over their roofs to hold them down to the earth when the great storms raged. The country was wild and rocky around here, but there were plenty of trees, plenty of moss and grass. Away off on the opposite shore of the lake, we could see some villages, and now for the first time we could observe the real difference between their proportions and those of the giant mountains at whose feet they slept. When one is in one of those villages, it seems spacious, and its houses high, and not out of proportion to the mountain that overhangs them. But from our altitude, what a change! The mountains were bigger and grander than ever, as they stood there, thinking their solemn thoughts with their heads in the drifting clouds, but the villages at their feet. The best simile I can devise is to compare them to ant deposits of granulated dirt overshadowed by the huge bulk of a cathedral. The steamboats skimming along under the stupendous precipices were diminished by distance to the daintiest of little toys. The sailboats and rowboats to shallops proper for ferries that keep house in the cups of lilies and ride to court on the backs of bumblebees. Presently we came upon a half-dozen sheep, nibbling grass and the spray of a clear stream of water that sprang from a rock wall a hundred feet high. And all at once our ears were startled with a melodious, pealing joyously from near but an invisible source, and recognized that we were hearing for the first time the famous Alpine Yodel. 
in its native wilds. As we recognize also, it was the sort of quaint commingling of baritone and falsetto, which at home we call a Tyrolese warbling. The yodeling continued, and was very pleasant and inspiriting to hear. Now the yodeler appeared, a shepherd boy of sixteen. And in our gladness and gratitude, we gave him a franc to yodel some more. So he yodeled, and we listened. We moved on presently, he generously yodeled us out of sight. After about fifteen minutes, we came across another shepherd boy who was yodeling. We gave him half a franc to keep it up. He also yodeled us out of sight. After that, we found a yodeler every ten minutes. We gave the first one eight cents, the second one six cents, the third one four, and the fourth one a penny. We contributed nothing to losses number five, six, and seven, and during the remainder of the day hired the rest of the yodelers at a franc apiece, not to yodel anymore. There is somewhat too much yodeling in the Alps. About the middle of the afternoon, we passed through a prodigious natural gateway called the Felsenthor, formed by two enormous upright rocks with a third lying across the top. There was a very attractive little hotel nearby, but our energies were not conquered yet, so we went on. Three hours later, we came to a railway track. It was planted straight up the mountain with the slant of a ladder that leans against a house. It seemed to us that a man would need good nerves who proposed to travel either up it or down it. During the latter part of the afternoon, we cooled our roasting interiors with ice-cold water from clear streams, the only really satisfying water we had tasted since we left home, for at the hotels on the continent they merely give you a tumbler of ice to soak your water in, and that only modifies its hotness and doesn't make it cold. Water can only be made cold enough for summer comfort by being prepared in a refrigerator or closed ice pitcher. Europeans say ice water impairs digestion. How do they know? They never drink any. At ten minutes past six, we reached the Kaltbad station, where there is a spacious hotel with great verandas, which command a majestic expanse of lake and mountain scenery. We were pretty well fagged out by now, but as we did not wish to miss the alpine sunrise, we got through our dinner as quickly as possible and hurried off to bed. It was unspeakably comfortable to stretch our weary limbs between the cool, damp sheets. And how we did sleep, for there is no opiate like alpine pedestrianism. In the morning we both awoke and leapt out of bed at the same instant, and ran and stripped aside the window curtains, but we suffered a bitter disappointment again. It was already half-past three in the afternoon. We dressed sullenly and in ill spirits, each accusing the other of oversleeping. Harris said if we had brought the courier along, as we ought to have done, we would not have missed these sunrises. I said he knew very well that one of us would have to sit up and wake the courier, and I added that we were having trouble enough to take care of ourselves on this climb without having to take care of a courier besides. During breakfast, our spirits came up a little, since we found in a guidebook that in the hotels on the summit, the tourist is not left to trust to luck for his sunrise, but is roused betimes by a man who goes through the halls with a great alpine horn, 
blowing blasts that would raise the dead. And there was another consoling thing. The guidebook said that up there at the summit, the guests did not wait to dress much, but seized a red bed blanket and sailed out arrayed like an Indian. That was good. This would be romantic. 250 people grouped around the windy summit with their hair flying and their red blankets flapping. In the solemn presence of the coming sun, which would be a striking and memorable spectacle. So it was good luck, not ill luck, that we had missed those other sunrises. We were informed by the guidebook that we were now 3,228 feet above the level of the lake. Therefore, a full two-thirds of our journey had been accomplished. We got away at a quarter past 4 p.m. A hundred yards above the hotel, the railway divided. One track would go straight up the steep hill, and the other one turned square off to the right with a very slight grade. We took the ladder and followed it more than a mile and turned a rocky corner and came in sight of a handsome new hotel. If we had gone on, we should have arrived at the summit, but Harris preferred to ask a lot of questions, as usual, of a man who didn't know anything, and he told us to go back and follow the other route. We did so, but we could ill afford this loss of time. We climbed and climbed, and we kept on climbing, we reached about 40 summits, but there was always another one just ahead. It started to rain, and it rained in dead earnest. We were soaked through, and it was bitter cold. Next, a smoky fog of clouds covered the whole region densely, and we took to the railway ties to keep from getting lost. Sometimes we slopped along in a narrow path on the left-hand side of the track, but by and by, when the fog blew aside a little, and we saw that we were treading the rampart of a precipice, and that our left elbows were projecting over a perfectly boundless and bottomless vacancy, we gasped and jumped for the ties again. The night shut down, dark and drizzling and cold, and about eight in the evening the fog lifted and showed us a well-worn path which led us up a very steep rise to the left. We took it, and as soon as we had gotten far enough away from the railway to render finding it again an impossibility, the fog shut us down once more. We were in a bleak, unsheltered place now, and had to trudge right along in order to keep warm, though we rather expected to go over a precipice sooner or later. About nine o'clock we made an important discovery, that we were not on a path. We groped around a while on our hands and knees, but we could not find it. We sat down in the mud and the wet, scant grass to wait. We were terrified into this by being suddenly confronted with a vast body which showed itself vaguely for an instant, and the next instant was smothered in fog again. It was really the hotel we were after, monstrously magnified by the fog, and we took it for the face of the precipice and decided not to try to claw up it. We sat there for an hour with chattering teeth and quivering bodies and quarreled over all sorts of trifles, but gave most of our attention to abusing each other for the stupidity of deserting the railway track. We sat with our backs to the precipice, because what little wind there was came from that quarter. At some time or other the fog thinned a little. We did not know when, for we were facing the empty universe, and the thinness could not show. But at last Harris happened to look around, and there stood a huge, dim, spectral hotel where the precipice had been. One could faintly discern the windows and chimneys and 
blur of lights. Our first emotion was deep, unutterable gratitude. Our next was a foolish rage, born of the suspicion that possibly the hotel had been visible three-quarters of an hour while we sat there in those cold puddles quarreling. Yes, it was the Ridgy Colm Hotel, the one that occupies the extreme summit, at whose remote little sparkle of lights we had often seen glinting high aloft among the stars from our balcony away down yonder in Lucerne. The crusty porter and the crusty clerks gave us the surly reception which their kind deal out in prosperous times. But by mollifying them with an extra display of obsequiousness and servility, we finally got them to show us to the room which our boy had engaged for us. We got some dry clothing, and while our supper was preparing, we loafed forsakenly through a couple of vast, cavernous drawing rooms, one of which had a stove in it. The stove was in a corner and densely walled around with people. We could not get near the fire, so we moved at large in the Arctic spaces, among a multitude of people who sat silent, smileless, forlorn, and shivering, thinking what fools they were to come, perhaps. There were Americans, Germans, but one could see that a great majority were English. We lounged into an apartment where there was a great crowd to see what was going on. It was a memento magazine. The tourists were eagerly buying all sorts and styles of paper cutters, marked Souvenir of the Ridgy, with handles made of little curved horn of the ostensible chamois. There were all manner of wooden goblets and such things similarly marked. I was going to buy a paper cutter, but I believed I could remember the cold comfort of the ridgy colm without it, so I smothered that impulse. Supper warmed us, and we went immediately to bed. But first, as Mr. Bedecker, the guidebook writer, requests all his tourists to call his attention to any errors which they may find in his guidebooks, I dropped him a line to inform him he had missed it by just about three days. I had previously informed him of his mistake about the distance from Eiler Heiligen to Alpenau, and had also informed the Ordnance Department of the German government of the same error in imperial maps. Those corrections have not been made either in the maps or the guidebooks, but I will write again when I get time, for my letters may have been miscarried. We curled up in clammy beds and went to sleep without rocking. We were so sodden with fatigue we never stirred nor turned over till the blooming blasts of the alpine horn roused us. May well be imagined we did not lose any time. We snatched on a few odds and ends of clothing, cocooned ourselves in the proper red blankets, and plunged along the halls and out into the whistling wind bareheaded. We saw a tall wooden scaffolding on the very peak of the summit a hundred yards away, and made for that. We rushed up the stairs to the top of the scaffolding and stood there, above the vast outlying world, with hair flying and ruddy blankets waving and cracking in the fierce breeze. Fifteen minutes too late, Harris said in a vexed voice. The sun is clear above the horizon. No matter, I said, it is a most magnificent spectacle and we will see it do the rest of the rising anyway. In a moment we were absorbed deeply in the marvel before us and dead to everything else. 
The great cloud-barred disk of the sun stood just above a limitless expanse of tossing whitecaps, so to speak, a billowy chaos of massy mountain domes and peaks draped in imperishable snow, and flooded with an opaline glory of changing and dissolving splendors, while through rifts in a black cloud bank above the sun radiated lances of diamond dust shot to the zenith. The cloven valleys of the lower world swam in a tinted mist which veiled the ruggedness of their crags and ribs and ragged forests and turned all the forbidding regions into a soft and rich and sensuous paradise. We could not speak. We could hardly breathe. We could only gaze in drunken ecstasy and drink it in. Presently, Harris exclaimed, Wait, nation! It's going down. Perfectly true. We had missed the morning horn blow and slept all day. This was stupefying. Harris said, Look here. The sun isn't the spectacle. It's us, stacked up here on top of this gallows, in these idiotic blankets, and 250 well-dressed men and women down there gawking up at us, not caring a straw whether the sun rises or sets as long as they've got such a ridiculous spectacle as this to set down in their memorandum books. They seem to be laughing their ribs loose. There's one girl there that appears to be going all to pieces. I never saw such a man as you before. I think you are the very last possibility in the way of an ass. What have I done? I answered with heat. What have you done? You got up half past seven o'clock in the evening to see the sun rise. That's what you've done. And you have done any better, I'd like to know? I always used to get up with the lark till I came under the petrifying influence of your turgid intellect. You used to get up with the lark. Yeah, no doubt. You'll get up with the hangman one of these days. But you ought to be ashamed to be jawed here like this in a red blanket on a forty-foot scaffold on top of the Alps. This isn't any place where an exhibition of temper. And so the customary quarrel went on. When the sun was fairly down, we slipped back from the hotel in the charitable gloaming and went to bed again. We encountered the hornblower on the way, and he tried to collect compensation, not only for announcing the sunset, which we did see, but for the sunrise, which we had totally missed. But we said no, we only took our solar rations on the European plan. Pay for what you get. He promised to make us hear his horn in the morning if we were alive. Chapter 29 Looking West for Sunrise He kept his word. We heard his horn and instantly got up. It was dark and cold and wretched. As I fumbled around for the matches, knocking things down with my quaking hands, I wished the sun would rise in the middle of the day when it was warm and bright and cheerful and one wasn't sleepy. We proceeded to dress by the gloom of a couple of sickly candles, but we could hardly button anything, our hands shook so. I thought of how many happy people there were in Europe and Asia and America, and everywhere, who were sleeping peacefully in their beds, and did not have to get up and see their ridgy sunrise. People who did not appreciate their advantage, as like as not, but would get up in the morning wanting more boons of providence. While thinking these thoughts, I yawned in a rather ample way, 
my upper teeth got hitched on a nail over the door, and while I was mounting a chair to free myself, Harris drew the window curtain and said, Oh, this is luck. We shan't have to go out at all. Yonder are the mountains in full view. This was glad news, indeed, and made us cheerful right away. One could see the alpine masses dimly outlined against the black firmament, and one or two faint stars blinking through rifts in the night. Fully clothed and wrapped in blankets, we huddled ourselves up by the window with lit pipes and fell into chat while we awaited in exceeding comfort to see how an alpine sunrise was going to look by candlelight. By and by, a delicate spiritual sort of effulgence spread itself by imperceptible degrees over the loftiest altitudes of the snowy wastes. But there the effort seemed to stop, and I said presently, there's a hitch about this sunrise somewhere. Doesn't seem to quite be going. What do you reckon is the matter with it? I don't know. Appears to hang fire somewhere. Never saw a sunrise act like that before. Can it be the hotel is playing anything on us? Of course not. A hotel merely has a property interest in the sun. It has nothing to do with the management of it. It's a precarious kind of property, too. A succession of total eclipses would probably ruin this tavern. Now, what can be the matter with this sunrise? Harris jumped and said, I got it. I know what's the matter with it. We've been looking at the place where the sun set last night. Well, that's perfectly true. Why couldn't you have thought of that sooner? Now we've lost another one, all through your blundering. It was exactly like you to go light a pipe and sit down to wait for the sun to rise in the west. It's exactly like me to find out the mistake, too. You never would have found it out. I find out all the mistakes. You make them all, too, else your most valuable faculty would be wasted on you. But don't stop to quarrel now. Maybe we're not too late. But we were. The sun was well up when we got to the exhibition ground. On our way, we met the crowd returning. Men and women dressed in all sorts of queer costumes and exhibiting all the degrees of cold and wretchedness in their gaits and countenances. A dozen still remained on the ground when we reached there, huddled together about the scaffold with their backs to the bitter wind. They had their red guidebooks opened at the diagram of the view and were painfully picking out the several mountains and trying to impress their names and positions on their memories. It was one of the saddest sights I've ever seen. Two sides of this place were guarded by railings to keep people from being blown over the precipices. The view, looking sheer down into the broad valley eastward from this great elevation, almost a perpendicular mile, was very quaint and curious. Counties, towns, hilly ribs and ridges, wide stretches of green meadow, great forest tracts, winding streams, a dozen blue lakes, a block of busy steamboats. We saw all this little world in unique circumstantiality of detail, saw it just as the birds did, and all reduced to the smallest scales, and as sharply worked out and finished as a steel engraving. The numerous toy villages with tiny spires projecting out of them were just as the children might have left them when they were done with play that day. The forest tracks were diminished to cushions of moss. One or two big lakes were dwarfed to ponds, the smaller ones to puddles, 
though they did not look like puddles, but like blue teardrops, which had fallen and lodged in slight depressions. Conformable to their shapes, among the moss beds and the smooth levels of dainty green farmland, the microscopic steamboats glided along as in a city reservoir, taking a mighty time to cover the distance between the ports, which seemed only a yard apart, and the isthmus which separated two lakes looked as if one might stretch out on it and lie with both elbows in the water. Yet we knew invisible wagons were toiling across it and finding the distance a tedious one. This beautiful miniature world had exactly the appearance of those relief maps which reproduced nature precisely with the heights and depressions and other details graduated to a reduced scale and with the rocks, trees, lakes, etc. colored after nature. I believed we could walk down to Vegas or Vitznau in a day, but I knew we could go down by rail in about an hour, so I chose the latter method. I wanted to see what it was like anyway. The train came along in the middle of the afternoon, and an odd thing it was. The locomotive boiler stood on one end, and the whole locomotive was sharply tilted backwards. There were two passenger cars, roofed, but wide open all around. These cars were not tilted back, but the seats were. This enabled the passengers to sit level while going down a steep incline. There were three railway tracks. The central one was cogged. The lantern wheel of the engine grips its way along these cogs and pulls the train up the hill or retards its motion on the down trip, about the same speed, three miles an hour is maintained both ways. Whether going up or down, the locomotive is always at the lower end of the train. It pushes in one case and braces in the other. The passenger rides backwards going up and faces forwards going down. We got front seats, and while the train moved along about fifty yards on level ground, I was not the least frightened. But then it abruptly started downstairs, and I caught my breath. And I, like my neighbors, unconsciously held back all I could and threw my weight to the rear. But, of course, that did no particular good. I had slidden down the balusters when I was a boy and thought nothing of it. But to slide down the balusters in a railway train is a thing to make one's flesh creep. Sometimes we had as much as ten yards of almost level ground, and this gave us a few full breaths of comfort. But straight away, we would turn a corner and see a long, steep line of rails stretching down below us, and the comfort was at an end. One expected to see the locomotive pause or slack up a little and approach this plunge cautiously, but it did not. It went on calmly, and when it reached the jumping-off place, it made a sudden bow and went gliding smoothly downstairs, untroubled by the circumstances. It was wildly exhilarating to slide along the edge of the precipices, after this grisly fashion, and look straight down upon that far-off valley which I had been describing a while ago. There was no level ground at the Kaltbad station. The rail bed was as steep as a roof. I was curious to see how the stop was going to be managed, but it was very simple. The train came gliding down, and when it reached the right spot, it just stopped. That was all there was to it. Stopped on the steep incline. 
and when the exchange of passengers and baggage had been made, it moved off and went sliding down again. The train can be stopped anywhere at a moment's notice. There was one curious effect, though, which I need not take the trouble to describe, because I can scissor a description out of it, out of the railway company's advertising pamphlet, and save my ink. Quote, On the whole tour, particularly at the descent, we undergo an optical illusion which often seems to be incredible. All the shrubs, fir trees, stables, houses, etc., seem to be bent in a slanting direction, by an immense pressure of air. They are all standing awry, so much awry that the chalets and cottages of the peasants seem to be tumbling down. It is the consequence of the steep incline of the line. Those who are seated in the carriage do not observe that they are going down a declivity of twenty or twenty-five degrees, their seats being adapted to this course of proceeding and being bent down at their backs. They mistake their carriage and its horizontal lines for a proper measure of the normal plane, and therefore all the objects outside which really are in a horizontal position must show a disproportion of twenty to twenty-five degrees declivity in regard to the mountain. Unquote. By the time one reached Kaltbad, he has acquired confidence in the railway, and he now ceases to try to ease the locomotive by holding back. Thenceforth, he smokes his pipe in serenity and gazes out upon the magnificent picture below and about him with unfettered enjoyment. There is nothing to interrupt the view or the breeze. It is like inspecting the world on the wing. However, to be exact, there is one place where the serenity lapses for a while. This is while one crosses the Schnurrtobel Bridge, a frail structure which swings its gossamer frame down through the dizzying air over a gorge like a vagrant spider strand. One has no difficulty in remembering his sins while the train is creeping down this bridge, and he repents of them. Though he sees when he gets to Visnau, that he need not have done it. The bridge is perfectly safe. So ends the eventual trip which we made to Ridgey Colm to see the Alpine sunrise.